PETA. What can I say? I never get tired of talking about them. I've had so many episodes about PETA that they've blocked me on Twitter. And yeah, that's right. They have in fact seen the episodes that I've made about them. Cause although I have not interacted with them on Twitter, they've blocked me. So uh, hi over there, glad you hate listen. Now we've discussed everything from their massive euthanasia rates at their shelters to their outrageous and offensive campaigns, and even to their links with literal terrorist organizations. And today we're gonna be discussing all of that. I'm effectively combining all of my previous episodes into one and giving you a detailed overview about the very worst of this organization while also trying to answer the question, why? Why is PETA like this in the first place? And what do they really believe? Hello everyone, and welcome to The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about PETA. Their president, Ingrid Newkirk, is one of the most interesting yet strange people that I've talked about. In her will, she has made it clear that she wants her skin to be made into a handbag. She wants her foot to be made into a human umbrella stand. She wants her eye to be sent to the Environmental Protection Agency to tell them she's always watching. And if I'm correct, this is also where she says her meat can be used for a human barbecue. It's unique to say the very least, that's for sure. I really highly doubt that even if Newkirk has her way, these people and organizations are going to actually keep her body parts, but you know, you do you, I guess. Understandably, Newkirk and as a result of PETA has been painted as extremist. Some will say she'll be remembered as the Martin Luther King of the animal kingdom, not me though. Other articles say she's genuinely the worst person in the world, referring to the way she exploits women in PETA ad campaigns. The organization puts naked women in cages, likening them to animals and euthanizes the dogs and cats in their care at alarming rates. So then why are they still one of the biggest organizations for animal welfare out there? What is it that makes PETA so powerful and such a household name? I'd also like to go ahead and place a content warning here right at the beginning of this episode. Much of today's episode will discuss animal abuse in varying degrees. If you're not comfortable hearing about it, I truly recommend skipping the entire episode as it's generously mentioned throughout. Now, with that being said, let's get into it. The People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, also known as PETA, was founded in 1980 by Ingrid Newkirk and Alex Pacheco. Although these days you probably know them for their extreme stances, like saying we shouldn't own pets at all, in the early years, they were mostly known for exposing animal testing. They were also appealing to cosmetic and pharmaceutical companies to use cruelty-free methods instead. Truly, the PETA of these early years was necessary, worthwhile, and invaluable in terms of animal rights. And this is why it's such a shame that they've fallen far from grace. One of their earliest success stories has become infamous, the case of the Silver Spring Monkeys. Behind me is a series of warehouses. I looked in 1980 at the list of USDA registered laboratories and found tucked away down there, an animal laboratory, a monkey lab called the Institute for Behavioral Research. And there was a little ordinary office. They would never suspect that there was a secret in the back of this building. 17 macaque monkeys kept in individual cages living- Alex Pacheco decided to go undercover at an Institute for Behavioral Research facility as a research assistant. There, monkeys were being surgically crippled to monitor the rehabilitation of impaired limbs. And while IBR wasn't hiring assistants, Alex became a volunteer to get to the bottom of the mistreatment. He described their condition as follows. 
I saw filth caked on the wire of the cages, feces piled in the bottom, urine and rust encrusting every surface. There, amid this rotting stench, sat 16 crab-eating macaques and one research monkey, their lives limited to metal boxes just 17 and three-fourths inches wide. There was nothing for the animals to sit on but the jagged wires of the old cages. A monkey named Sarah, then eight years old, had been alone in her cage since she was one day old. 39 of the fingers on the monkey's deafferented hands were severely deformed or missing, having been either torn or bitten off. This case was unprecedented and served as the catalyst for becoming the massive organization they are today. Raids on animal labs just weren't being done at the time. For PETA to be the first to initiate this was absolutely monumental. Those that took part in this situation, like Lieutenant Swain, who led the raiding party, said it was nothing like I had ever been in. Quote, I've worked in murder, narcotics, in vice, but this was the first time I went into a room and I felt legitimately concerned for my health just being there. Yet, despite this being a great deed, signs of PETA having a self-serving angle or a need for the spotlight were already beginning to present themselves, even in these early stages. As Swain said in the Washington Post, he worked with PETA to plan this raid and safely house the monkeys when it was over. A key element was keeping the process secret until it was over, but PETA didn't do that. Instead, they called reporters and tipped them off about the raid, making an entire spectacle of it. I was mad, Swain recalls, it wasn't appropriate. In fact, it's illegal in Maryland to divulge the existence of a search warrant. Now, I can see why PETA wanted attention on the case, absolutely. There's deserved press to be about it. And it was such an unprecedented event and such an important moment for any animal rights activist. However, did they really do this the right way? By talking about this early, they risk jeopardizing the mission and breaking the law just for the sake of press. In more recent years, it's pretty clear that PETA cares more about attention and shock value than animals themselves. But back in 1981, that shock value launched their organization, even if it broke the law and didn't change anything about the monkey's rescue itself. But here's the thing, the case didn't end here at this magical moment where they were rescued. The monkeys were kidnapped, some were subjected to more experimentation, and there were legal battles over the monkeys with both research organizations and animal rights ones accusing the other of exploitation. A British scientific magazine, Nature Magazine, called the monkeys the most celebrated icons of the US animal rights movement and a variety of protests took place. The battle even reached the Supreme Court a decade later where animal rights activists won custody of the remaining monkeys. Only about seven of the 17 remained after 10 died of natural or government funded experiment causes since that raid. PETA went undercover again and in the early 2000s went to a slaughterhouse. The New York Times said that the animal rights activists finally managed to be taken seriously after releasing videotapes from a hidden camera in a slaughterhouse that kills chickens for KFC. While animal death is to be expected in a literal slaughterhouse, workers stomping on chickens, flinging them into walls, and let me warn you about this just for a moment, uh, a worker literally tearing the head off of a bird to write graffiti and squeezing the birds until they exploded was absolutely not expected. This crossed a line between killing chickens for their meat and straight up sadistic, horrific acts of brutality. There have been various moments like this throughout the years, PETA occasionally opening the public's eyes to abuse and the public reacting accordingly. Yet strangely, PETA has been heavily taken at their word, seemingly not even questioned or fact-checked. In 2013, they released a video that yet again shocked and horrified many. Footage of various Angora rabbits screaming as their hair was ripped out. According to PETA, this process was repeated every 70 to 75 days and about 60% of the rabbits tormented in this way died after just a year or two. 
As a massive part of the world's Angora comes from China, PETA implied that most of the Angora on the market is collected in this very brutal way. There were a few doubts about this footage when it was released though. The author of Truth About Fur argued that no one actually wanting to make money would pluck a rabbit this way because it would damage their coat and reduce its quality. Another website called Wendell Wabbits showed footage of how they claim shearing and cutting the fur of an Angola rabbit actually works. And they too said they believed PETA's footage was staged. In a similar situation just a couple years ago, PETA said they traveled to Thailand and found monkeys being chained and forced to work incredibly long hours gathering coconuts from trees for farmers to make coconut milk. The footage here too was heart-wrenching, but brought into question. NPR argued years prior that the monkeys were working animals yet pets in the way that a sheepdog might hurt livestock. While abuse cases do exist, that doesn't necessarily make the entire industry an abusive one though they did concede that young monkeys were taken from the wild and that wasn't acceptable. Others within the industry itself has said that tools which can gather far more coconuts at once are popular. And while monkeys may still be used from time to time, it's becoming less prevalent. I don't doubt that horrific animal abuses exist within working animal trades. Animal abuse is in far more places than we'd like to consider, honestly. However, as I was researching the Angola video, every source that referenced how horrible this treatment was right back to PETA they weren't really double checked. And to me, it feels like the public became so outraged at this that brands like Calvin Klein, H&M, Zara, and Tommy Hilfiger reacted quickly to look progressive. They banned the wool because people were furious about it. Peter received a pat on the back for bringing our attention to it, and that was that. Similar events have happened with coconut milk and large brands banning the brands that source coconut milk from Thailand if there might be monkey labor involved. So why is this a bad thing? Because it doesn't seem that way. Why not ban everything that could involve animal abuse? Well, the bigger issue here is this is putting a Band-Aid on the actual problem. This attention doesn't solve anything. PETA has conducted these investigations and spurred people on to never use Angola wool again. But what about the farmers using safe practices that may now be out of work? What about those dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of rabbits that they now have no need for? Where do those rabbits go if they shut down the Angola trade? And This is one of the issues that I have with PETA. And it's one of these extreme mindsets of boycott everything because it also doesn't present a safe solution or safe alternative. Instead, I feel like advocating for checks on potentially harmful farms or advocating for regulated farming practices is more effective in the long-term. Temporary outrage is just that, it's temporary. It will go away, people will forget about it. You don't hear people talking about monkeys and coconuts anymore, and you don't hear people talking about rabbits and fur. My biggest issue with PETA is they like the outrage, they like the outcries, they love the spotlight, but they're not actually bringing any solutions forward with how do we fix this? They just go, this bad, and then that's it. And then they just go away for like a couple months or a couple years and then come out with something else. They're not providing solutions to these problems. And I think they really should be doing that as an organization that's supposed to be protecting animals. But anyway, that's my tangent. Feel free to take it or leave it. Now, while Pacheco remained with PETA for these early years, he left in 1999 because according to him, it drifted far from its base. When it fell into the hands of Newkirk alone, I believe it strayed even further as we'll see in a moment. Now that we've talked about PETA's history and advocacy as an animal rights organization, let's discuss why I don't believe they're a reputable source and how they've earned their title as the largest kill shelter. But before we continue on, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. 
If you're anything like me, planning is an absolute necessity just to make it through the day. And when I'm saying planning, I'm planning everything. Everything's written down on whiteboards. I know what I'm doing, what I'm eating, and I know probably weeks in advance. That's why I really love HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers fresh pre-portioned ingredients to your door every single week, or if you don't wanna do every single week, they can do it whenever it works for your schedule, which is great for someone like me. You can pick your favorites from 50 different weekly options and skip weeks when you need to, change your delivery date or update your preferences all within the HelloFresh app, which is seriously the easiest thing in the world to use. And HelloFresh's chefs really know how to diversify the menu with seasonal recipes like salmon limon and pasta primavera. And HelloFresh even has fit and wholesome recipes for satisfying and nutritious meals that you can feel good about with six recipes per week to choose from, including low calorie and carb conscious options too. So make sure you go to hellofresh.com casket16 and use code casket16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's hellofresh.com casket16 and use code casket16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Today's episode is also sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. I love being able to shop online while in my PJs, but I'm terrible at keeping track of promo codes and who has time for that? But now I have Honey to help find those precious money-saving codes for me. Honey is the free shopping tool that searches the internet for promo codes and applies the best ones to your cart. Now, recently I've been reducing how much I've been buying online. I've been really trying to hold back and just kind of keep it local a little bit. I don't know, I'm just trying a new thing for right now. It's a new year's resolution. It's probably gonna fail, but I'm trying anyway. But I've used Honey to help purchase furniture for the house when I needed a new rug from a furniture store. It's even helped me buy some supplies for the candle making business and of course clothing. So they're literally everywhere. And now Honey just doesn't work on your desktop alone. It also works on your iPhone. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on amazing savings. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. And I'd never recommend something I don't use. And I've been using Honey for years. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com casket. That's joinhoney.com casket. Before we talk about PETA's shelter, let's explain the difference between a kill and no-kill shelter, or as they're known, open versus closed admission shelters. An open admission shelter takes every animal in need and tries to find them loving homes. The APA or Animal Protective Association is an open admission shelter that receives about 4,500 animals a year. And in 2021, 97% were adopted. Yet they aren't defined as no kill because while euthanasia is the last resort, sometimes it's used for animals that are suffering or dangerous. Limited admission shelters will typically take in animals that they believe can be adopted, hence why they refer to themselves as a no-kill shelter. It's fantastic that no-kill shelters won't treat euthanasia as an option, but for any of you out there who think it means that they won't give up on a difficult animal, they often aren't admitting those that are very difficult cases to begin with. And of course, I do wanna note that these are really broad definitions. I wanna make this point because when we hear kill shelter, the image in our head may be of nothing more than a dingy pound where animals are put down at alarming rates. And this isn't the case for many open admission shelters that do strive to help animals in their care. Because animal overpopulation is such a problem, this may be another reason that open admission shelters put down animals. Many of them that I've found do believe in spay and neuter programs, which also helps to curb this issue. Regardless of what you personally believe about open and limited admission shelters, this is why PETA argued that they need to exist as an open admission shelter. They refuse to turn away any animal. 
And I don't disagree with that necessarily, but you would think that PETA, a massive and staunch animal advocate, would do everything in their power to make sure their numbers are in favor of animals as much as possible. If some organizations such as the APA can adopt 97% of the animals that come to them, then PETA, who collected $42 million in the year 2015 alone, should be able to do the same. And hey, 42 million, that's a really sweet number, right? I'd like to have $42 million. I don't think I'll ever see that in my lifetime, but that would be pretty sick. Do you know what they do with $42 million? Well, let's take a peek. So instead of maybe using that money to go towards more animal welfare, opening up more shelters, all that good stuff, they actually spend a ton of that money on criminal and legal defenses. Now, if they're going to spend so much of their money on attorneys, they better be backing their legal claims up. Sometimes they do win, like when they slammed the Tiger King himself with an Endangered Species Act lawsuit for failing to properly care for his animals. Sometimes they don't, like when a zoo accused them of defamation or when they've accused horseback riders of animal cruelty. And of course, some believe their lawsuits are utterly ridiculous. Like when they sued photographer David Slater, for example. A monkey took a selfie with David's camera, which he sold on his website. PETA fired back saying that the monkey's copyright rights had been violated. But surely not all of that 42 million is getting spent on lawsuits. Some frivolous, some not. And surely PETA is spending enough of it to keep the animals in their care safe, right? Well, unfortunately that's also not the case. PETA has a lengthy history of putting down the overwhelming majority of animals in their care. In 2011, they impounded 760 dogs and euthanized 713. Of those 760, only 19 were adopted and the remaining ones that lived and weren't killed were sent off to other shelters. They also impounded a total of 1,211 cats that year and 1,198 were euthanized, eight were transferred and only five got homes. If you'd like to know what that means in uh, statistics, this makes the adoption rate a whopping 2.5% for dogs and less than half a percent for cats. Nathan Winograd, a Stanford graduate and former corporate lawyer, argues that their kill rate isn't due to laziness or poor management, but something more nefarious. He claims that founder Ingrid Newkirk is a disturbed person and a shameless animal killer, comparing her to nurses to get a thrill from killing their patients. In addition, Nathan made it a point to mention how the numbers PETA will typically report come from Virginia, a state that compiled data for animals taken into custody for the purpose of adoption. Therefore, the claim they kill so many unadoptable animals is, as Winograd alleges, a downright lie. He says, it is a lie because rescue groups and individuals have come forward stating that the animals they gave PETA were healthy and adoptable. It is a lie because testimony under oath in court from a veterinarian showed that PETA was given healthy and adoptable animals who were later found dead by PETA's hands, their bodies unceremoniously thrown away in a supermarket dumpster. PETA believes that in a perfect world, we wouldn't have pets and that the very word pet objectifies them. So when I learned about their high euthanasia rates in my previous episodes, a part of me wondered if they had just been doing this because they just don't believe in pets in general. However, if Winograd is right and the founder of PETA is in essence a nurse killing her patients, then they have an even bigger, disturbing and systemic problem on their hands. For years now, news articles and animal rights activists have questioned the very notion of PETA actually caring about the animals' lives. In 2014, they euthanized more than 80% of the animals in their care, which even prompted lawmakers in Virginia to act and define a private animal shelter as a place where the primary mission is to find permanent homes for animals. And seriously, when lawmakers almost unanimously agree on something, you know you fucked up. 
So why is it that PETA can't see this? Their numbers are abysmal. And while PETA says their statistics are twisted to demonize them, you can't really twist the facts here. And the fact is that PETA, even when compared to other kill shelters, does an extremely poor job at saving animals. Yes, PETA does claim that they take in some of the worst, sickest cases, so their euthanasia rate may be higher. But they're also, by their own admission, have taken in loving and adoptable animals that they've killed because they couldn't find them a home. And personally, I'd be curious to know how hard they were actually trying to find these pets homes and how long they were actually willing to wait before killing them off. In one particularly infamous case in the 2010s, PETA seized an unattended chihuahua and put it down the same day, breaking Virginia's required five-day grace period. Security footage even showed PETA taking the dog right off the family's porch. So while the dog may have been unattended, as they say, it wasn't just wandering the streets. They stole the animal off of that family's property and then killed it. The little dog named Maya belonged to a nine-year-old at the time and her father, Wilbur Zarate, believed that he thinks they put the animal down because they consider pet ownership as a form of involuntary bondage. Though PETA was fined just $500 for breaking the law when they put Maya down after just one day, Wilbur also sued them. PETA agreed to pay the family $49,000 and donate $2,000 to a branch of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or SPCA, in honor of Maya. And can I just say, like, how pathetic do you have to be to donate thousands to a different animal rights group because of your breach of animal rights? I mean, come on. On, that's like a hospital donating to a different hospital because they keep killing their patients. It just baffles me that they're still in operation. They might bring awareness to some causes with their undercover videos, but even those are debated. Yes, they saved a handful of monkeys, but they also put down thousands of animals in the process too. Why are they a champion for animal rights again? Because they claim to be? I just fail to see how the good outweighs the bad even in the slightest here. Now, PETA continues to insist that they only kill animals to end their suffering, while openly admitting that they, yes, will euthanize an animal, even if they're adoptable. Newkirk herself answered the question, do you euthanize those pets, the adoptable ones, if you get them, with the words, if we get them, if we cannot find a home, absolutely. And you just can't have it both ways. You can't only euthanize suffering pets and euthanize perfectly healthy adoptable ones too. Pick your fucking narrative and stick with it. Now, after all this, I really wanted to try and understand PETA and Newkirk here. Why do they kill? How can they believe in animal welfare while they have these statistics? And in my opinion, treat animals as expendable. In all the times I've taken a look at PETA in the past, no matter the articles, the documents, the legislation, I've never been able to put my finger on that answer. However, I looked into Winograd's website, Why PETA Kills, and found some quotes he compiled from various interviews with Newkirk. He asked her directly how PETA as an animal rights organization could advocate for rounding up and killing feral cats. And this response made my jaw drop. Newkirk explained that they aren't actually an animal rights organization and that quote, we do not advocate right to life for animals. Get this, right? PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals does not believe in the right to life and explains that they are not an animal rights organization. Then what the fuck is the name? Like, my brain is exploding. Now, Newkirk actually began her career in animal welfare by euthanizing animals at the Washington Humane Society, sometimes dozens each day. She claimed, quote, the animals got the gift of euthanasia and to them, it was the best gift they had ever had. 
How dare you pretend to help animals and turn your back on those who want an exit from an uncaring world? That's a quote. And if we're being frank, it's really an ironic quote, considering that she even admits that even if the animal is adoptable and has the opportunity to have an exit from the shelter to have an amazing life with a family, that it's like, no, we'll just euthanize them instead. Now, PETA seems to go too far in the opposite direction of the no-kill movement. While many activists like Winograd seem entirely opposed to euthanasia under almost any circumstance, PETA truly believes that killing animals is an act of mercy. In some extremely sick cases, perhaps it is, but to act like the majority of animals in their care just want to die, this shit is fucked up. The way that PETA depicts themselves as some merciful savior by granting these animals death from a cruel world, why not show them a world full of joy and happiness? Why not use some of your gigantic tens of millions of dollars in that fucking budget you get every month to campaign for giving these animals homes instead of frivolous lawsuits and garbage campaigns full of bikinis? Though more on that in just a minute. Now, I know the subject of animal welfare and curbing the population via euthanasia and all isn't completely black and white. I'm willing to hear other perspectives, absolutely. But when PETA has an adoption rate of 2.5%, which by the way, is compared to that of 97% of APA, you can't tell me they really care about animals having a happy, beautiful life. The idea of Newkirk being a nurse killing her patients doesn't seem that far off. I know when I originally kind of said that statement that I was like, you know, maybe it's a little strange. But then when you start putting this all together, you go, is it that unbelievable though? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I almost start to agree with it a little bit. But don't despair, let me end this section on a high note. Euthanasia rates at shelters are plummeting. More and more people are adopting rescue animals and the awareness about the harm in buying from pet stores grows and the spay and neuter programs are having an impact. The president and chief executive of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, Matt Bershaker said that rescuing an animal has become a badge of honor. The stigma around rescues has improved and more programs have been formed that help resolve problems like landlord disputes over keeping pets and unaffordable vet care. Of course, there is still more work to be done and we should continue to support these programs, but at least there are signs of real change. Yet what I find particularly telling is that nowhere in this article, this very lengthy 2019 article all about euthanasia rates is PETA brought up. You'd think that after all they claim to do for animals, that they'd at least be mentioned for contributing to such a victory, but they're not. And that I believe says quite a bit about PETA. But let's move on to what PETA does actually do. Let's talk about those campaigns. This is Jessica. She suffers from BWV AKT boom. Boyfriend went vegan and knocked the bottom out of me. A painful condition that occurs when boyfriends go vegan and can suddenly bring it like a tantric porn star. Please go to bwvaktboom.com and learn to go vegan safely. PETA has run a number of campaigns that have plenty of shock factor, but fail to actually send any message. They often use sexual imagery, like one old advertisement that featured Joanna Krupa posing nude, a crucifix over her crotch and breasts with the message, be an angel for animals printed below. Whether you find this offensive like the Catholic Church did or just laughable or somewhere in between, it's not like this advertisement does anything for animal welfare. It might catch someone's eye, but it doesn't tell anyone how to help animals or why animals need help in the first place. There's no call to action here. It's just naked woman with cross, animals. Like, okay. The same thing could be said of their advertisement that featured Pamela Anderson labeled as if she were a cow with the words round, rump, rib, breast, etc. drawn onto a photo of her. 
This ad was actually banned for sexism in Montreal and another one of their campaigns comparing chickens in cages to the Holocaust was banned by Germany's high court. And I think that's pretty obvious as to why. PETA also dressed up as clan members for a publicity stunt at the Westminster Dog Show, seemingly trying to send the message about breeding for superiority. And I, I don't know, dressing up as the Ku Klux Klan has, has never worked out well for anybody. So um, why? They also released a 30 second ad featuring a woman in a neck brace back in 2012. In it, the narrator said that Jessica suffered from BWVAKT boom or boyfriend went vegan and knocked the bottom out of me. So not only do their commercials consistently objectify women, but they make light of racism and sexual abuse too. And I get that they're trying to grab attention, but nowhere in these ads do I feel like someone is going to walk away wanting to treat animals better. Aside from how blatantly offensive and belittling they are, they divert people away from the real problem. If anyone should be able to run a successful campaign, you'd think it would be one of the most well-known animal organizations out there. Maybe you'd think that PETA would decide to hire a new marketing team when their campaigns are so hated by people actually helping animals, but they don't. Many of their campaigns seem to imply that those who aren't vegan hate animals, neglecting to mention any nuance or gray area. Some people can't be vegan and need meat in their diet. Others can't afford to be vegan. But PETA doesn't really recognize or care about this. Their ads aren't just meant to shock, awe, or disgust, but to guilt too. They've adopted just about everything from sexual assault to autism, implying that autism can be caused by dairy products in one of their advertisements that replaced the got milk slogan with got autism. So that was a thing too, FYI. Again, really doing a great job at infuriating people there with your offensive language. Not a great job at sending well-informed messages though. But here's the question, do these campaigns work? While I would say no, and many of my friends around me would also say, no, these are ridiculous. Ultimately, they have to be successful in some regard, otherwise PETA wouldn't keep using them. At least that's my assumption. While these ads aren't saving animals or earning them respect, it does get them attention. They have 9 million members and supporters around the world that feel the way they do. That's quite a bit of attention. There have been a few campaigns that are, as Forbes puts it, revoltingly effective that do get a message across without insulting someone. In one such example, it was the Behind the Leather campaign in which PETA created a pop-up store full of leather products, only for each one to have blood, intestines, or gore on it in some way to illustrate that the leather came from a living animal. Other studies, such as ones discussed in Brisbane Times, state that the effects of PETA's advertisements led to participants believing the message was dehumanizing and inconsistent with any sort of ethical act. The School of Psychology Honorary Research Fellow, Dr. Renata Bongiorno conducted this study at the University of Queensland and she explained, they've indicated that sex is the only thing that gets attention, but humans are a bit more complicated than that. Sexualization might get attention, but our study shows that people would reduce their support for an ethical cause. It's a lazy approach to use provocative campaigns without worrying about the effect it's having on your audience. It seems to me like PETA and Ingrid Newkirk primarily are so radical and outrageous in their beliefs that they'd rather find people who agree with them and continue to make shocking and isolating statements than actually make real change for animals. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. God forgives all, my son. I've lied. Uh, To your wife? Uh, To the world. Are you a politician? No, I uh, work in the meat industry. I'm the guy who came up with uh, free range on all the chicken packaging but uh, there is no range. Now, please know that for this section, we will discuss acts of terrorism and bestiality. 
If either of these topics upset you, then please feel free to skip the rest of this episode because it's, it's gonna keep getting worse. These are the well-known controversies among PETA, but there are a lot more. I couldn't possibly talk about all of them in one episode, hence why I have so many episodes on PETA already, and I'll probably have more in the future. But I want to address the people they've surrounded themselves with. Apparently, PETA has handled the press for ALF, or Animal Liberation Front. Influence Watch called out Ingrid Newkirk and quotes her as saying, I will be the last person to condemn ALF back in the 1990s. So what has the ALF done? Well, arson for starters. ALF are notorious eco-terrorist extremists that have claimed responsibility for $1.2 million worth of damage after setting a Michigan State University research facility on fire. They also provided financial assistance to Rodney Coronado, an alleged member of ALF, and giving him at least $45,200 worth of donations and another $25,000 to Rodney's father, all for his legal defense. Rodney actually pled guilty related to charges in the MSU fire, but PETA didn't just give him money. Rodney allegedly attempted to send a package containing stolen documents from the MSU lab to Ingrid Newkirk herself. In addition to ALF, PETA has also been associated with ELF or Earth Liberation Front, yet another extremist group that was categorized as the largest and most active US-based terroristic group by the FBI's domestic terrorism chief, James Jarboe in the late 90s and early 2000s. Between 1995 and 2010, according to the Department of Homeland Security, they committed 239 arson and bombing attacks. 239. 55% of those were ELF and 45% were ALF, and PETA has ties to both. They even apparently let Gary Yurovsky, who served jail time for an ALF attack on a fur farm, lecture middle and high school age students through PETA programs. So it isn't just they support these groups financially, but put terrorist group members in front of children. And that's wild to me. Though I suppose it shouldn't be that surprising when their vegan campaign director, Bruce Friedrich around this time in 2001 said this, blowing stuff up and smashing windows is a great way to bring about animal liberation. It would be great if all the fast food outlets, slaughterhouses, these laboratories and banks who fund them exploded tomorrow. Now, when PETA isn't supporting terrorists, they've terrorized people in their own way, like doxing young Yale researcher, Christine Latin. According to her, she put a tiny amount of oil into the food of captured wild sparrows to research health problems and deaths in wild dolphins and sea turtles. Her research has been important to understand oil exposure to potentially help animals in the future. But PETA spread the falsehood that her experiments were curiosity-driven with no meaningful application. But it gets better or worse, I should say. Newkirk hasn't just compared slaughterhouses to the Holocaust and sent a letter to a Palestinian terrorist leader to implore that he reduce animal collateral damage in his attacks. That would have been horrible enough. But she and the terrorists she's associated herself with have gone so far in their extremist beliefs that they're anti-human. Newkirk was voluntarily sterilized at 22 because she claims to have no reverence for life. And that's, that's her words, not mine. Of course, it is her body and her choice. And if she doesn't wanna have children, that's cool. I'm in the same boat. I don't want kids either. But for her to say she has no reverence for human life is kind of sickening. And she's allegedly agreed with bestiality too. So I'm just gonna go ahead and read this quote because if a girl gets sexual pleasure from riding a horse, does the horse suffer? If not, who cares? If you French kiss your dog and he or she thinks it's great, is it wrong? We believe all exploitation and abuse is wrong. 
If it isn't exploitation and abuse, it may not be wrong. Newkirk wrote in a letter to the editor of this particular Toronto column and said that she doesn't condone bestiality, citing a case when a man forced himself upon small dogs and chickens, rupturing their organs in the process. She claims to have only meant this in the case of a dog absentmindedly humping a leg or things of that nature. But to say those things in context of a discussion on bestiality and to support other activists who have condoned it, I don't know. I don't see why she says the concept of consent with animals is different. It's not. Animals can't consent to sex acts with humans, period. And when it comes down to it, and and in my personal beliefs, my opinion here, PETA is incredibly sick and twisted. On one hand, they put animals on the level as humans, believing we can't own them, acting like they have rights to copyright and things of that nature. They seemingly revere animals so much that even when humans are dying in terrorist attacks, they ask the terrorist, oh, hey, try not to kill too many animals, thanks. But yeah, the humans go off. But all the while, they mercy kill animals at higher rates in their shelters than any other open admission shelters. The more I look into them, the more it feels like Newkirk believes she's some weird savior, some nurse that's killing their patients for the benefit of God and glory or whatever. I could be wrong. And again, my opinions here, I don't know her exact intentions. I can't get inside her mind. And to be really frank, I don't think I ever want given the opportunity. I don't wanna know what goes on inside her mind. It's probably some fucking twisted shit in my opinion. But this feels like these are her intentions. Like she's just a very messed up savior complex or God complex individual that somehow twisted it into a pretend animal like group. It's weird, it's unsettling and it's gross. Now, whether or not you agree with PETA, their tactics have forever alienated people who do care about animals. Their extremist views certainly do not make many want to associate with them. And I feel that's for a good reason. Personally, I'm proud to be blocked by PETA on Twitter. I believe they shouldn't ever be seen as a reputable source of information and that their approval on products and their opinions on animal welfare should be taken with a grain of salt. And I would almost argue even that's giving them too much credit. But with all of that being said, that is where I'm going to end today's episode. I I can't say I hope you enjoyed it because it was a deeply unenjoyable episode, but I do hope that you learned something new here today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so you can stay up to date on all of the most recent episodes. I appreciate you spending some of your time here with me this afternoon to learn the conclusive story about PETA, and I'll see you in the next one. Take care. 